Hello, my name's Maura Gamble from the Permaculture Education Institute and welcome to the fourth and final part of this special four-part series on localization on the Sense Making in a Changing World podcast. I'm here with internationally acclaimed localization activist Helena Norberg-Hodge. Helena is the founder and director of Local Futures, an international non-profit organization dedicated to renewing ecological and social well-being by strengthening communities and local economies worldwide. Helena has just released a new film, Planet Local, A Quiet Revolution, but she's been publishing for a long time. Her first book, Ancient Futures, was written back in 1991 and has been since translated into 40 languages and sold over 1 million copies. She's been the subject of hundreds of articles and written many books, including her latest book, Local is Our Future, Steps to an Economics of Happiness, which accompanies her award-winning documentary, also called The Economics of Happiness. Helena's work spans almost five decades with support and collaboration from leading ecological thinkers. She's been the recipient of a Right Livelihood Award, also known as the Alternative Nobel Peace Prize, and also the recipient of the Goy Peace Prize. I first met Helena back in 1992 at Schumacher College and was absolutely inspired by the work that she was doing and subsequently volunteered with her in Ladakh or Little Tibet and have stayed in touch ever since. In the first three parts of this series, we talked about the global economy, localising our food system and the importance of focusing our efforts on building community and restoring ecosystems. Here in part four, we dive into big picture activism. We all know that a radical shift in the way humanity is living is essential for our future, but where do we spend our energy as activists to have the most impact possible? Here we explore the concept of big picture activism, acting locally and globally simultaneously, and explore too what role permaculture can play in this. So again, grab your notebook, listen in with friends, follow up by watching Helena's films and delving into her study group material, her books and her localization action guide. And feel free to, as always, to share this widely. Remember, this series is available both as audio and video podcasts. You can find the links below in the show notes as well as to all of Helena's materials and our links to the Permaculture Education Institute as well. Before we begin, I would like to acknowledge the traditional custodians of the land on which I'm meeting with you here today. I'm here on the unceded lands of the Gubby Gubby people on the banks of the Mookabula River and would like to pay respects to their elders past, present and emerging. So sit back and enjoy, and thank you so much for being here as part of this series of conversations with Helena Norberg-Hodge. Well, thank you for joining me again, Helena. It's been wonderful having these conversations with you over the last few weeks. We started with that the big picture thinking, looking at um, economics. We then um, flowed into exploring uh, food systems change and then into looking at community, the importance of community. And so today, what I really would like to focus on um, exploring is with all of that and thinking about the kind of change we need, what are the sorts of education, action and, and leadership we need to help bring that forward? So um, thank you for being here again. Well, I'm very happy to be here and so glad that you're doing this work which I think of as big picture activism. So I do think there's a huge need for education, meaning sharing both 
examples and information, but also sharing a framing, a bigger picture of what's going on. And because for us, this is absolutely vital. We believe that most of our crises are connected to this dominant economic system. And even if people don't believe that that's the case, what I think they will be seeing is that whether their concern is the health of their children or what's happening to their school or whether they're concerned about climate change or poverty in the third world, whatever their concern and whatever the multiple issues are that we're facing, money to deal with them is just disappearing up there in that sort of ozone cloud where fewer and fewer people make more and more money and in an obscene way. And even in my native part of the world, Scandinavia. And so we addressed that at the beginning, but I think now coming back to looking at what we can do and activism, I just want to really remind people that it's actually an opportunity. Looking at the bigger picture is an opportunity to help people come together in a really united voice doesn't mean that we all become part of the same organization, doesn't mean that we abandon our particular concern, but if we could just take a little bit of time, step back a bit to think about the problems we face, and what we're saying is if you take the time to go deep enough and broad enough, you will see that these crises are connected. And as I say, even if the crisis is just that everything you care about hasn't got any money anymore, and including that your child going into the workplace today has options that are a fraction of what you had as a parent. And why? Why is this happening? So we're looking at that why, and we're really urging people to share the bigger picture so that we can unite in our effort to really bring about systemic change. Mm. Now, when we do that, we'll, we'll also see that there is so much we can do at the local level and that we've been sort of misled because we've been with <clears throat> essentially, we've been subjected to a framing of the issues and I'm talking now about, you know, these enormous environmental and social problems we face. The framing has been done by big money, by big corporate interests. And it's not that they're all evil people and trying to do everything they can to destroy us. They are just fixated on the bottom line. And then as these crises become apparent and they deal with them, they frame them, they're framing them in a way that prevents us from seeing how much we can do at the community level. They prevent us from seeing how much we could do at the political level, if we understand the global situation. So this bigger picture needs to be shared and it needs to get out there, you know, just like you're doing now, you know, in promoting permaculture, but with this bigger picture that shows 
how important permaculture is, and how it can answer so many of our needs and solve so many of our problems. Well, it turns out that we've been essentially manipulated, in a way, into a framing where we've been told for these last 35 years that we are going to solve these problems as individuals. Mm -hmm. So we should just focus on recycling our plastic a bit better, driving our car less, not buying so much stuff. We need to deal with our greed and our personal addiction. And now we're being told that we also have to deal with humanity's resistance to handling information. We're being told that people don't want information, they don't need information, we shouldn't be talking anymore. Just let's get on with the action. And the action that's being encouraged is this very narrow, small steps that individual consumers can engage in. Now, what we're saying is when we look at the bigger picture is that no, please do what you can to come together in a community group, make it, you know, between, you know, even two to 20 people, and then examine this bigger picture and figure out what you might be able to do jointly. And I think I talked earlier about how important it also is as part of that group to really embark on a deeper psychological healing, which has to do with deeper connection to one another. But at the same time, as you examine these issues from a deeper uh, level, it will become so apparent that we have been you know, prevented from seeing that community initiative where we change the I to a we can suddenly bring in this multiplier effect and be so empowering. And we can know that what we're doing is so real and so, um, yeah, has these multiple benefits. And so this is the whole field of localization. But again, when you understand the global bigger picture, you will see that what happens to food and farming, what happens to farmers is really what happens to our health, to our bodies, and to the planet. And so focusing on that and taking any number of community initiatives from edible school gardens to community gardens to food co-ops, and it doesn't always have to be a co-op. You can link up with um, private shops even and get them to carry products from local growers. Now, all the time, as we do these things, we also need to be aware that part of the information and the education we need to spread is that we are all acting inside a system that makes human labor, human care, human intelligence too expensive. So we're all running faster and faster, and we're also short of time, which is one of the biggest costs of the dominant system, the time pressures. So we need to be very kind to ourselves, to others, to everybody, basically. So, Helena, how do you respond to that question then about time and urgency and scale because you know we're all hearing we've got to act we've got to act fast we've got to act big so 
Where is your response in amongst all of that? I remember so clearly sitting at an environmental meeting in Germany. Oh, it's probably, I don't know, at least 30 years ago. And it just dawned on me how crazy it was that we were hearing about these urgent issues and it was so clear that we need to slow down. Well, there's actually not a contradiction there. As a society, we need to slow down. That means we need to start looking at the mechanisms whereby our society is being pushed to operate faster and faster. So it comes back to looking at the economy. It comes back to seeing that our elected representatives are actually choosing to make us poorer, both financially and in terms of time, while enriching essentially foreign corporations. And this is not about being anti-foreign, but it is about saying, wait a minute, I thought you were supposed to represent us. We have voted you into government to be helping us and looking after our needs. And and even when it's not foreign corporations anyway, it's it's the super rich and it's essentially the structure of the corporations getting more and more wealth while we're poorer and poorer. So, yes, that system needs to slow down. However, we, if we understand the urgency of the issue, we need to be willing to speed up with our activism. But let's be careful that we don't fall in the trap of running faster and faster just because that's the way this society operates. Let's quite selectively choose to reduce some of the time running that might be connected to buying consumer goods or that might be connected to this idea that we need to have certain things that we don't actually need. Now, that is also one of the key things about that is that when we tell our young children, no, 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 we're not going to be running faster and faster to buy you a new iPad every year. Sorry, you can't have it. Then it's like a verdict for them that says they can't be part of community because they've been now brainwashed in a monocultural education setting to believe that the only way to get the love and respect they want is to listen to the mandate from a corporate consumer monoculture. And so the idea is if I don't have those Nike running shoes and now if I don't have those latest black tights with you know lace in them and if I don't have the, the iPad, I will not get the love and connection I want. So again, that comes back to one of the millions of reasons why we urge people to find community with like-minded people. We urge people to try to find even schools that might be a little bit leaning towards the importance of community, ecology, spirituality, sustainability, rather than just conventional schooling. But even if your child is in a conventional school, we would urge you to try to connect with other parents so that at least your child can have some mates who have similar values. Because the social need to belong has been perverted and twisted, and particularly with young children, in a way that is so evil, it's really terrible, that natural human 
need to be loved and to feel that you belong, to have community. And it's been twisted into, if you want that, you've got to have those latest gadgets. Mm-hmm. And we're not reminding ourselves enough of that and, and, and doing enough to help our children find a sense of belonging and community with those different values. Yeah. No, 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 that's great. I, I wanted to take that uh, another layer up and talk about, so once you're in sort of out of school and going to university, then where are the places on how is it that we can be educating ourselves? Like where do you point to to say, okay, this is what we need to be learning about. Where is it that we can learn about this in a broad sense, yeah, sorry. Yeah, well, that's, you know, there there are um, hidden alternative organisations, websites, schools. Schumacher College is one that you're familiar with that I was involved with from the very beginning and that offered a holistic mm-hmm. view linked to ecological and spiritual and community values And when you do look around the world, when you look at the Global Eco-Village Network, when you look at transition towns, and for us in our organization, Local Futures, all of those um, movements and activities are part of a broader localization movement. And that localization movement is about returning to our home, the natural, to nature. It's about coming back to who we are as human beings, needing that community fabric, as I said before, needing to feel connected to life, discovering the wealth and the richness that comes from being in tune with the complexity, the diversity, the constant change in life. We've been herded into a world of static permanence and led to believe that, you know, the cement building, which will never break down, is better and safer than the natural um, building. As it turns out, it's the opposite of the truth. The natural buildings in hurricanes, in earthquakes, and all around the world, you can see that they're safer by looking at, in so many places, it would be the older parts of the cities where buildings were built in mud and with wood that are much safer. We have a sort of propaganda machine that tries to tell us the opposite. And in many countries, they're making it illegal to use natural materials. In other countries, like right now in Mexico, it's not right now, a couple of years ago, there was an earthquake near Wichitan and our colleagues wanted to try to help with rebuilding houses in the natural style, where there are local materials available. Materials are virtually free. I mean, you know, mud and stone are available virtually everywhere. But the government was only going to hand out money if you use cement and steel. So they weren't making it illegal, but what they're doing is they're making human labor so expensive that it comes almost impossible to do the right thing. However, when you know that this is going on and then when you step back to see how much is happening, then you feel inspired again. You feel, 
oh, I'm depressed about what governments are doing. It's shocking what big business is doing. But then you regain faith in humanity when you see literally hundreds of millions of farmers, you know, gathering to stand up for their for the, for the truth, basically. And when you see the activities going on literally everywhere. I mean, I I do honestly every day in my inbox get as much good news as I get bad news. And because I know that the good news is suffering under these incredible constraints, I'm so inspired by it. And then um, for years, it was becoming so apparent that the people who were engaging with more life-affirming, healthy ways of living were not only healthier, but much happier. They found it meaningful. So when students now go off to university, you know, the first thing we would urge them to do would be to maybe show a film that depicts some of these inspiring initiatives. And certainly we have on our website lots of examples of things that people could show to then see who might be interested in coming to that event and then talk to them afterwards to find like-minded individuals who have the courage to go against the dominant culture, which exerts so much pressure and because we all want to belong, people end up often going with that, but in their hearts, in their deep wisdom, in their knowledge, they know we're going in the wrong direction. They know there's something very wrong and they, they have the potential to really light up, literally, as they start hearing about these other alternatives. And that's my, that's my experience too with, with um, you know, for a very long time I've been showing your films in, you know, in different contexts from when I was working with you in the dark to, you know, through the permaculture courses in community centres. And because you touch on so many different aspects of life, and point to some of the things that people go, oh, that's right. That's, you know, it's kind of a realisation, sort of lifting a veil of, of, um, of the world that we've been sort of corralled into and, and all of a sudden we see it differently. And so I think your idea in terms of education, self-education and a form of activism and finding people, showing the materials that you have, your films or opening up conversations around that, I think is a beautiful place to start and connect. Mm. Yeah, and, and in, you know, as we were saying earlier, we're just launching an action guide for people who are interested in going local. And um, that's a really wonderful tool. But introductory to that, films like Ancient Futures or The Economics of Happiness are really good because they're addressing that bigger picture also both of the economic system and its damage, but also addressing the human need for love and connection, the human desire to be happy. You know, I used to be, you know, really attacked often by the left for talking about happiness. You know, it was so vague and woolly and anyway, you can't measure it. And I always used to say, you know very well that you know when you're happy or when you're unhappy. And you know that there's a huge difference 
And you know that you'd rather be happy than unhappy. So don't tell me that we shouldn't think about it. Don't tell me we shouldn't talk about it. And, you know, is there any more important goal? And, um, and as it turns out, when you recognize, as indigenous culture shows, that the ecological well-being, the well-being of all that lives, is the same part of the same system that makes you feel better and healthier. So your well-being and the well-being of life itself are connected. And the same path in the direction of using more natural materials, having more faith in our senses, in our embodied wisdom, in a much deeper knowing, all of that is being revitalized across the world. And, uh, and it's definitely women who are leading the way. Sure. Um, it's only women who are you know, more in touch, obviously, with their bodies and through birth and, and you know, being part of that miracle of creating life. Women are you know, carrying a deep, deep wisdom about nature and about how we can, in an embodied whole way, in a whole way, actually start living closer to that. Um, you know, now in the COVID epidemic, whatever your thinking is where it comes from and about vaccines, what we can see is that women, you know, started saving seeds in Japan because they knew that this is one of the most important things for health is to be, to have access to fresh, healthy food. You know, women started growing herbs and paying attention to ways of preventing illness and staying healthy. So this is all part of the picture that we need to share and we need to raise the status of it. Yes. Because, you know, in our society, as we know, women don't have as high status as men. And so when... You know, I'm hearing very much what you're saying is about finding a group locally. But then there's the bit that that weaves together those local groups everywhere so that it is elevated into this global movement. So how do you how do you see that happening? Where is that where is that connective tissue and how do we nurture that and compost that? Well, I'm so thrilled that you brought up that question because I feel I feel like a real party pooper when I do <laughs> go on to, you know, urge people to look at precisely that. Because all around the world, that reweaving of the very local fabric between people and people and nature and starting all that work, not just with gardens, but renewable energy, natural building finance, local finance, local energy systems, all of that really deserves our effort and all of us will gain, you know, greater joy and will be contributing to something very real by supporting that and being part of it. But very definitely, once we sort of step back again, look at the big picture, we need so much more effort to spell out the vision of what this represents and to be really clear about the vision behind the dominant trend, behind 
the government policies that are leading to a sort of a corporate and banking takeover of our world, the, the pressures that are leading to the psychological pollution that is so intense for our children, but for all of us. So we need to look at that bigger picture and we need to come together, you know, as I was saying earlier, with a collective voice about policy change. And that starts by having clarity about the current policies that have led to this craziness. And that's, again, when people, you know, I just hope most people would realize that it's actually very hopeful when you realize where this comes from, because it does not come from the majority of the human race pushing for these changes. On the contrary, for a very long time, there's been resistance. In fact, I would argue that the resistance from the human race, from the majority of people on this planet, has actually started already back in the Victorian age. Victorian age was a sort of cultural nadir. I can't remember if we talked about that earlier. Oh. Okay, well, so the, for me, the cultural nadir was when people had been pushed off the land into these urban slums and part of the pressure on them was the dirt, the body, the earth, the earthworms, all of that was dirty and shameful. They even covered piano legs. You didn't want to see legs. You didn't want to see body parts. It was very much connected with a sort of Christian rejection of the body, of the senses, connected to this economic trajectory where you were fine and you were respectable if you dressed in those clean clothes. And if you no longer had people just dropping into your house as they used to do to sing and tell stories and be part of the community, no, no, now you had to have a very formal sitting room with nice lace curtains and people only came by appointment. And I saw this later on happening in Ladakh. What happened in Victorian England, I got to sort of experience in Ladakh as people suddenly moved away from having the kitchen be the center of the home and in a relaxed way, cooking and talking and socializing at the same time. But now, just like in Victorian England, it was, it was the formality, it was the separation, it was the breakdown into the nuclear family and the separation of nature with a real overt fear and hatred of nature and the natural. So that was sort of, yeah, I would say the cultural native. But very rapidly as people felt the alienation from nature and lived in cities, values started changing. In the early days, the values also were racist. It was fine to hunt indigenous people. It was, you know, overtly anti-nature, as I said, and misogynist. But what we've actually seen is a cultural progress since then, where people's values have changed, where the feminine, the indigenous, and nature have gained more and more and more prominence, love, and respect. However, from my analysis, and I, I, 
I'm pretty alone in looking at it like this, and it's because of Ladakh. But from my analysis, the economic trajectory, which had started, you know, even before the Victorian age with global traders pushing enclosures on slavery, these global traders kept gaining more and more power. So this is the big issue. What happened to global traders and how it is that even while there's been a sort of left inclination in politics to create better conditions for the poorest, to be concerned about the abysmal conditions created by this rampant capitalism. And later on, with the advent of fossil fuels that supposedly came in, were supposedly cheap and involved world wars and so on, there were people who believed that actually the best way to avoid another world war or another depression is by rolling out the red carpet for global traders. But the way it was framed was, we need to integrate the whole world into one interdependent whole. That this is still a big problem, even with Western environmentalists, that they believe that the internet is actually integrating us into one interdependent whole. So with very idealistic values, they're embracing a technology that actually is a tool for corporate expansion, for centralized control and surveillance. It's a tool that's magnificent for mechanical, speedy, reductionist, numerical transactions, which is why it's intimately linked to the financial casino, which helps gamblers to invest in our mortgages, in our lives, in our trees, in our water, and with the speedy tool. No, it's a big, it's a big thing. So we don't go too much into that. Well, I think Maybe we might talk think, about technology another time. Well, I, yeah, you know, I think it's a really important point. You know, I do recall you talking about internet, gosh, 25, 30 years ago, and I remember hearing you, and I, and now here we sit talking across the internet and trying to find ways to utilize it to amplify this perspective. So, you know, we can't, you know, I get stuck in the point where thinking, well, I can't not use it because otherwise I won't be able to to reach out. So how do you feel about that? This is where distinguishing between your individual choices and your ability as an individual to be the change. You can't be a healthy society. You can't be a community. You can't be the, you know, the, the thriving health that we're talking about, a healthy society in a healthy ecosystem. There's no way that you as an individual are gonna be that change. That change has to come about through collective action. And so, first of all, then to distinguish between those two so that we don't fall into the trap which we're being pushed into by big corporations to just tell us, oh, you say the car isn't good. Well, you're driving a car, so how do you dare speak out against the car? How can we be using the internet like this now and then express our doubts about it? Well, sorry, I've got a very logical, common sense answer to that. 
We right now have almost no other choice in terms of communication. First of all, this system, this corporate system has destroyed essentially the democratic postal service where everyone, CEO or grassroots activist, the communication was operating at the same speed, victim of the same processes. No, now with the internet and these tools from the outset, the big and wealthy and the military have had these tools way before activists still have far bigger computers, have data sensors, have engineers galore and the money that is being created by this internet system, basically. And so now what can we do as activists? We'd be silly, I believe, to say, well, we're not going to use it and I'm never going to drive my car and yet I am motivated to try to bring change in the world. Mm-hmm. Now, we have to be willing to distinguish and be willing to compromise and to talk about it, you know, to show this is in no way hypocritical. I know that a lot of people <clears throat> on the surface, especially people who don't realize how much I hate traveling, which, you know, almost no one really believes me except John, you know, my husband. <laughs> he tries to get me sometimes to go on a holiday, you know, getting into a plane or even getting into a car. Like, I would have visited you, you so often. I love Crystal Water. But even just getting into a car for me is, you know, I, I, if I'm doing what I want to do, I'm walking or maybe cycling or maybe riding a horse. And so I traveled so much because I was so motivated to get this picture out. And one of the ways I could do it was through public speaking. And and then I ended up helping to set up movements and so on. But um, yeah, it's been a a huge relief for me that I can't say yes now in COVID (laughs) because I get tempted. Not if people say, will you come on a holiday? I've had all kinds of offers. But no, if they say, will you come and start some initiative here or, you know, spread the word, I have all kinds of things. But, you know, I think what you said is a really important one and it's something that a lot of people get stuck on is this being criticised for being partly in the system and not. And it's like unless you've got it 100% or even 200%, you know, you get slashed down really and you're you're also we're being slashed down when people try to set up different systems like an eco-village and there is so much friction there's so much trouble because these are people living in a pressure cooker but like I said one of the key things is that everyone is so time poor And for deep communication, meaningful communication requires a lot of time. The kind of work we could do if we weren't swimming in the sea where this oil slick and all these technologies intervene all the time, we could do things so much more easily in a much more leisurely way. But so that's again where we, when we understand the pressures that people are struggling under We need to be much, much more, um, first of all, appreciative of the number of things that are happening that are positive, much more understanding of the conflict, and and also much more urgently, the thing we need to understand is where can we intervene strategically? And the main strategic intervention 
is number one, a better understanding of the system that is shaping the world. And we need to distinguish between the system, a man-made system, and Gaia herself. So we have a man-made system that is now engulfing Gaia, the infrastructure, particularly with the internet, but even before that with the oil and the roads and the ships, the whole infrastructure, the perversion of value so that slaves on one side of the world could benefit their local elites by producing for nothing virtually and then selling in cultures where money creation was going on so that as a global trader, you could produce in India for almost nothing and then sell in America or England where there was value now going up as people had some money. Now that has continued. And what is led to is that global corporations benefit when we do our transactions globally. If everybody ate local food tomorrow, no global corporation would earn money, but billions of people and small businesses would. And so instead now, everything is crisscrossing back and forth. And, you know, we can't, we don't build our own furniture, we don't make our own masks, we don't grow our own food. We don't, why not? Because of this system. So I won't, I won't. Because I think that's a really important thing, isn't it? That one of the strongest things is, like you're saying, being aware, but being aware of it and then being a non-participant in that system. And Well, wait. No, no. It's not about, you see, being aware of it. You could be, as far as I'm concerned, I would love it if you were a corporate lawyer and you were willing to sit down and understand this system. And as far as I'm concerned, you could keep doing your corporate law and lots of money, but I would be asking you to help spread the word. I'd be asking you to help get out the clear analysis and to be talking in the corporate world about the fact that even, it doesn't matter how big you are, you're always threatened by mergers. So what this is literally like this snake chasing its tail. The speed and the competition affects everybody, politicians, CEOs. So it's so the the goal of understanding this system isn't that you as an individual try to remove yourself from it. The goal of understanding it is that you try to come together at the local level to create the foundations of healthy systems which are needed now and which will be needed forever because the only way that we as human beings can feed, clothe, house ourselves and do that in a way where we do not destroy diversity has got to be linked to having local knowledge systems but local living realities and so localization is an absolutely necessary and inevitable path forward. Now, as the global supply chains are crumbling a bit and there's some discussion of it, there's hope that we might get political change. But beware that there's a lot of, of uh, local washing going on. Mm -hmm. uh, that is absolutely counterproductive. Many corporations are coming back from China 
to now produce things like washing machines in America with robots and is not a step forward. The mining in China, the mining in the Congo that's going on to replace people with technology while people in America can't get a decent job. Is, so we have, you know, we need this systemic view to understand that we should not only be setting up those local um, systems, which cannot be perfect under the current climate, mm. but that can do a lot, particularly in the area of local food and, and real human connection. So I would say for anybody thinking about their children's future, for sure investing in community and land and the skills um, that are needed is essentially important. Yeah. But we need, even in the local communities, much more attention to education and awareness building because in the local communities, many of the growers, whether new permaculture students or older farmers, have not studied the global economy or the global system. So they're often naively embracing myths around uh, supply and demand, around the market, you know, and its price setting, when actually it's our governments setting a pricing system that destroys the majority at the expense of the, of the minority, you know. So we have to be quite savvy at the local level to do this in a strategic way. Where do people, so this was kind of part of the education question, and I guess you know, the understanding about how to do life more locally is kind of really accessible now. There's lots of places. There's permaculture courses. There's Transition Town, as you mentioned. There's the eco-village movement. But where to find the information, the detailed information about what you're saying, how to learn, like, is there like a council of, like, I would love it if there was like a council of elders or, a, you know, a, as some kind of place where we could say, right, you know, we need to learn more about this. This is how we can unpack it and have a movement at that level talking about Yeah, yeah. Well, that's, we, we did set up what we call the International Alliance for Localization, and that is that sort of umbrella of several partners that we have in our network, and it's global because the whole idea is that, you know, this is essential also that localization isn't some retreat into your own local. And, and the truth is that one of our biggest problems is that people are thinking too locally and that so many of these local initiatives suffer because they don't have that global view. Now, the global view isn't just about understanding the financial casino, but it's also understanding what is actually going on on the ground in the so-called third world. So there's this huge divide between land-based traditional regions, whether in Brazil or India or parts of Africa, um, Indonesia and so on, and the urban industrialized Western parts of the world. So again, that, that global picture is essential. And I guess if I were to point to other organizations besides local futures, our International Alliance for Localization um, and um, also um, 
you know, the people who participated in our World Localization Day. So we were collaborating with 80 groups. Beyond that, I would say that the Schumacher College, Schumacher Society, and also Schumacher Society in America are, you know, closer to our view. And I would say there are people like Christian Felber in the German-speaking world who's working on the economy for the common good. There is an emerging new economy movement which is uh, moving in this direction. But they, a lot of it is still, from my point of view, too Western and too techno-naive. Um, and the techno-naive, I think, has to do with not having studied the basic principles of what's when going on. When you say techno-naive, what do you mean? I mean that most of the people who are engaged in the new economy movement, first of all, they tend to be mainly men but they also believe that the internet would be a real positive tool and that the only problem is in whose hands it is. Mm -hmm. and, and they're also, even in the current climate, they're very excited about blockchain and using blockchain for these new healthier economy initiatives. They believe that blockchain would create more accountable structures than what we have now. And I find that unbelievably naive. I'm, I'm, Can you talk I'm more about that and the type of local economic system you think we need to be working towards? Well, I would say that we first of all need to realise that as we start in local things and, and the proliferation of local initiatives that have worked have been primarily around food and we have also been part of setting up local currencies, and they ran for maybe 10 years. Did we cover that earlier? I can't remember. No, we didn't part. talk much about that. I think, yeah. I think it's really, I think it's important part of the activism. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, it is. Because also, by the way, I worked with the first economist to take local seriously, and that was Richard Dowthwaite, an English economist. And he studied around the world where local economic initiatives were happening. And one of the most successful was in Melanie, near you. Yep. And he even came out here and... Um, he came and stayed with us here in our house, actually. Oh, did he? I have a ring on my table where he left oh, his cup. It's yeah. like, that's the Richard Douthwaite cup. Yeah. <laughs> and, he, and he was very impressed with Melanie and with Crystal Waters. But... You know, I don't want to say, well, I was right and he was wrong, but the truth is I was from the Ladakh experience. Remember, I was living in an indigenous culture where money played a very small role and where farming and food was so central and community was so central. So I was more focused on both those ecological realities and the social reality. And we, and yeah, so now I would say, without a doubt, what has actually survived and flourished, not enough, but is the local food initiatives. The local currency initiatives, whether they're time dollars or, or let schemes or actual physical money, haven't worked. And then I often, especially the men who are interested in local economies, they get quite annoyed when I say that. But I feel an obligation not to encourage people to embark on activism that is not likely to succeed. 
when I've seen this over now 30 some years. And, um, and like I say, we started two, one from our Berkeley office, one from Vermont, and they both ran about 10 years. But the farmers markets we've helped to start or the ones that we've inspired people to start, all the local food stuff has usually not only survived, but gone on to seed many more. What is different about that? What, why is it that the local yeah, food, but I'll not the local you. money? Yeah, goes I'll tell that. you. I'll tell you because I ended up studying it. You know, I was quite um, perplexed in many ways. And what appeared was that the people who were willing to join a local money system tended to be more marginal people. And that often meant either people who had, you know, very few resources or people who were well off enough to, to not worry about income. But it was a sort of marginal minority. And, and like I say, they didn't, they didn't live on. Many people would still say to me, or even now would say, but it's a good educational tool. As far as I'm concerned, it's not, it's gonna fail. You know, I think it's good that we've had this to study. And I'm not at all saying, I don't think they can ever be useful. So when my friend, who's the mayor of Bristol, George Ferguson, brought in a local currency, and even his salary and other salaries in local government were paid in the Bristol pound, and people could pay taxes, local taxes in the Bristol pound. But well, maybe now is the time to embrace this, but no, it's not taken off. I don't know if you'd be happy here we say it, but it hasn't. And he's got very involved in local food and the Bristol local food movement is amazing. But so then what have I seen in the local food movement is the opposite. In other words, quite conventional people from all different directions, including often more conservative farmers and also sometimes conservative shoppers as well, but um, and often very green and sort of left consumers coming together in this beautiful marriage using conventional currency and managing to pay farmers 10 times more than they would get paid in the dominant system. And because the market pressures for diversification, the market, the consumer is saying, I don't care if each avocado is the same size. I don't care if there's a blemish on it. But then I know you didn't spray so much. So suddenly, see, this is where there's this structural, vitally important difference between local and the global system. And so, so, so this is, um, so using the conventional currency but creating structures that create that proximity, that real communication and community fabric in the whole chain from production, processing to consumption, that's where you can do amazing things still. And it still needs the education to get more pressure so that we can pressure at the local council level, local governments, you know, in cities, the mayors, to move in the right direction. It's, um, you know, right now after COVID, it's really important that we have our eyes open and that we engage at least part of the time 
not just in the gardening or the renewable energy project, but in this educational part to build up more pressure because we're in this now, in this V where there's huge pressure to take us further towards robots, which means huge amounts of minerals. And in the name of renewable energy, you know, we're going to be using, using up the earth in a horrific way. So now all the language, renewable energy, sustainable, local, regenerative, all that language has to be examined because in all those arenas, we've got big business active. And, and one of the key things is when we talk about business, let's not allow people to push us in this corner where, where we're either pro-business or against business where we're either pro the private sector or against it. No, the distinction is between global deregulated monopolies that are ordering our governments, telling them that they'll be sued if they don't do what they say. And this is what our governments are going along with. And in the meanwhile, businesses operating, even at the national level, but especially at the local and regional level, are under far more visible, accountable surveillance, general, you know, genuine social surveillance that is beneficial, that is necessary. So that distinction now is vital and is part of the whole education process. So... You'd say your inbox gets filled up all the time with such great examples of things people are doing. I wonder, so as well as the success of local food movement, what are some of those other directions that you see are opening people to, to this way of thinking at successfully? Well, I would say um, right here I'm surrounded by these wonderful women who started a group called Pregnancy, Birth and Beyond, and it's all about really supporting women who want to have a natural home birth. And this now, again, requires a lot of education and, as it were, lobbying because the midwifery, as it's brought into the dominant system, is becoming less and less what people want. It's not allowing the more natural way. I mean, first of all, part of this lobbying should be that birth should never have been seen as some kind of illness. It should never have been part of this fear-mongering of, you know, oh, my God, something could happen. But that, again, it requires a lot of education. Um, it, you know, I, I saw it happening in Ladakh where women dying in childbirth was virtually unheard of. But the sort of propaganda was, oh, my God, you know, they're giving birth at home, it's dirty. So they take you into a place full of disease, and then they tell women, your hips are so narrow, you've got to have cesareans. And then doctors who are so busy, they're not evil people at all, but they're in the system where it suits them. Yeah, yeah, let's do the birth at 6 o'clock on Monday. And it all gets, we all end up in a machine. Um, so countering that machine requires the big picture and so much of it is connected to having had, as I did, the experience of a more natural indigenous way of doing things. And there's a lot of evidence, so part of the education is also reading up 
on the earlier observations of traditional cultures, because one of the most profound and important parts of the brainwashing that's been going on is the idea that with progress, things are just getting better and better. And the further back we go in the past, the worse things were. Now it turns out that when you go back in the past, they were worse in most cases in the West because you're going back to the initial rupture. So like Dickensian London, a complete mess and illness and crime and no social cohesion and you know, super wealthy, poorer people. And so yes, it was a mess and things on a certain level have improved since then. But if you go back further and you look at what happened before those people were pushed off the land and you look at land-based, more indigenous ways of living, you find a very different truth. So that's ancient futures, you know, sort of coming full cycle, not to go back to exactly what we had, it's not possible. And on a crowded planet, the new ancient will be a bit different. But I actually, I believe that it could possibly be even better than the old ancient because the new ancient, or this is the old local and the new local as well, um, I am convinced that we could add a certain level of communication, more, a bit more travel, a bit more of a shield from the vagaries of nature, all of that without costing the earth, destroying our health, exploiting others. It is done within the understanding of localizing instead of globalizing. The globalizing part is one where we exploit on the other side of the world. We don't even know that we're exploiting, you know, and the localizing one is where we try to do as much as we can from our local resources and then through human scale institutions, not monopolies, we have exchange and trade and information. Another, another question that I get asked as well is, well, that's all right, Morag, but that's okay for you because you live in the countryside but we can't have the whole entire population living like this. How would you respond to that? Yeah, I would say that the this is, again, it's one of those things I just die to try to do animated or illustrated films to convey. And that is that already from the London mess till today, the big cities use more resources per capita than rural communities. So on a crowded planet, we need to move towards supporting villages, smaller towns and smaller cities to reduce the human impact. The system now driven by big corporate interests is literally on almost automatic pilot to push the entire human race into mega cities. And so the system now operates to encourage bigger and bigger ports near those cities. And so that these global corporations can deliver their global products in smaller numbers of centers. They can't deliver to every village in India or China, you know. So this concentration is completely linked to economic exploitation 
and to a monopolistic control of the finances, but also of our minds. So it's so heartbreaking for me to see young, idealistic, ecological architects now all believing that, oh yeah, we're going to go high-rise. There's so many immigrants, we're going to have climate immigrants, population is going up, we've got to go high-rise. Because there's this understandable, simplistic idea that if we're all gathered on one bit of land, there's so much more land available. But they, that's ignoring the realities that especially when you use compost, including human compost, you know, for the trees and the land, and when you're able to have a connection between human consumption and the waste, the animals, the animals producing waste that is then used to fertilize the soil, you're actually reducing the impact and increasing the productivity of the land. Yes. So even in terms of wilderness, people being more spread out, we would have far more wilderness uh, and and productive landscapes yeah and I think that's kind of the bigger picture I see as I explain permaculture in a way it's not just about the gardening it's actually about how we think about designing you know human habitats as as a whole yeah yeah I see that we've 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 talked for an hour already (laughs) um I wondered whether we could just close this i'm okay i'm all right to talk a bit more you might want to edit some of what i did earlier if i said it for the third time or something well when i listen to the whole thing i'll get to see if there's any repetition yeah Yeah. but you know sometimes it's hard to know because it comes in from a different angle and yeah Yeah. so i mean maybe we could do in each of the other ones did we do an hour each is that what we did we did about an hour each yeah. yeah yeah I'm happy to do a bit more now so we can finish it off maybe a bit better because I might have gone on a bit too long about some of those aspects. So I think the key things that um, would be really good to try and just to bring it all together is just really, um, you know, what are your, we, we started to talk about this a bit last time too, but what are your calls to action? What are, if people, um if people would like to find out more about this, the the kind of education that you would like to encourage them to do, and if you could maybe even design a program, you know, what would you what would you include in a program of education that would give people the information, or is there experiences that you would like to encourage people to take? Because I mean, what I'm hearing as you're talking about is, you know, it's your experience in Ladakh, your experience in Indigenous communities and, you know, that connection, that really visceral connection with a with a place, a community, and noticing that, that spaciousness of time, of observation and, and participation, not just as an observer but actually being intricately involved. How, how do we cultivate that shift? Our dream was always to have an educational centre. So when Schumacher College was first set up, we were about to set something up ourselves, but then we got involved there. And then for various reasons, including my husband's health, we've ended up here in Australia. Part of the education that we were always encouraging was that people do spend time in more land-based, traditional parts of the world. And I think now 
those projects that I would urge people to visit are a, a blend of people who come out of the urban industrial to support land-based and traditional ways of doing things. So you remember, you know, in the urban industrial, one of the key things is that the extended family breaks down. So when people come to the more rural, traditional parts of the land, of the world, they're very inspired by intergenerational family. They can also see whether they're articulated or not, that generally speaking, that way of life is more feminine. It allows for more nurturing relationships. Men have more to do with the care for the children, for the animals, and so on. And women are more engaged in the vital central parts of provision of the economy. So already the male-female uh, divide is not as polarized. There isn't the same fear of growing old. So all of that, when it's linked to support from very often Westerners, and often white Westerners, often white male Westerners, those projects can be extremely rich and fertile in that you have both that you know, people who had a taste of the emptiness of the consumer culture, living in a high-rise flat on their own with no connection to life, discovering the vital importance of reconnection to nature and others, and supporting those traditional communities who are now being brainwashed into believing that they're backwards, stupid, and have nothing to offer. So that offers a really beautiful combination. And I know you're working in Africa, and I think the marriage between permaculture and some of those traditional ways of living, those areas have really fertile and very, you know, offer learning experiences. We would like to, and we do plan to do an online course, um, and we hope that part of that will be able to be linked to supporting young people to visit some of these places. With COVID now, it's definitely become more difficult. And it, even before COVID, you know, there were forces underfoot that were making it more and more difficult for the communication between the urban industrial West and non-Western cultures. And so what we're seeing is a pattern where the non-profit world, the environmental and social activist world is being stopped quite dramatically from international engagement. So even coming to Schumacher College was becoming far more difficult for students and teachers in the last years before COVID. And even sending a donation to India from the West was becoming virtually impossible. At the same time that not only could Monsanto send money to India, but they could go into India and do as they like in free trade zones. And this, again, is why it's so vital that we understand that bigger picture. Not to say, oh, it's so depressing, it's so big, we can't change it. But to understand that if most people knew this was going on, and if they could see the picture whereby they were being so curtailed, while big business is having more and more freedom, we would have a huge human, you know, humanity would stand up. We're talking about 99.9%.
being imprisoned and preventing the goodwill of non-profit and charity supporting people on the other side of the world while the for-profit sector is being encouraged to exploit. So I think the education that um, I would definitely offer people right now in COVID is certainly our website. You know, if people do have questions, they should write to us, but we have a wealth of material. We have material from authors looking at indigenous culture. We we have a, a study group curriculum that addresses all these points from the sort of indigenous to this sort of globalized corporate system. Uh, We've got a series of films and um, we have excellent talks from these 20 conferences we've had around the world on this theme, on this big picture theme. They were called Economics of Happiness Conferences. So, but we also plan to organize that as a course and hopefully it will be uh, probably based as a physical base in Australia near us, but also as a, hopefully a collaboration with some of our partners around the world. Because with World Localization Day, we collaborated with 80 organizations in 30 countries. And, And even for people to visit from the Anglo world, you know, even to visit villages in Spain or Italy or Japan or Korea, there's a huge amount of learning that can go on to clear away the debris of this individualistic, consumer-oriented environmentalism and to clear away the debris of left-right politics that are not showing us anything about what's going on. Nothing. And so the real politics is when we understand the driving forces of the global economy and its influence on every government, its influence on the psyche of children around the world and, and all of us, adults as well. So this... That's where the real political power is. That's where we really have to have some ideas so that we can have a collective voice um, so that we're coming from this uh, essential clarity about the fact that until, well, even now I would say generally the left was not looking at the fundamental, absolutely essential need to protect this sort of triumvirate of ecology community and the spirituality that connects life, that that connects community to ecology. That was not part of the spectrum of critiquing a very um, exploitative and destructive capitalist system. So this is again where the language of capitalist critique, you know, and the left, and so much of what we've been trained to believe, for me, doesn't capture, it misses life, it misses the story of life, of what human beings need, what nature needs, and how that is the real economy. Well, I think there's an enormous amount, you know, when you look at your website and, the, like you're saying, the study groups, the localization um, action guide, the 
your new film, Local, A Story of Hope. You've got um, Economics of Happiness, Ancient Futures, your books, all of that material. I was just thinking as you were speaking, it would be so great to maybe have an opportunity where I know you have World Localization Day, but whether there's a chance to create more open sort of forums where people who engage in this material can engage with other people, whether there be some way of creating that kind of community of global community of practice somehow. That Yeah. Well, you see, the IAL does do that to some extent. So if you join the IAL, you will have an opportunity to communicate. But I, I'm now more looking at how we can, because that's just, some are individuals, some are, some are representing groups. Some are, I think there are people from 58 countries or something. But it's, I think, more fertile soil is going to be when there is some kind of human connection between the various groups and when it doesn't get too big. And so somehow I think the way things will need to be organized is in you know, sort of concentric circles and then a certain representation. It's a, it's a really tricky issue as we're trying to promote, you know, what I always say, we're trying to promote small scale on a large scale. We're trying to promote it, you know, globally. But then to have the ability to have genuine collaboration and feedback and encourage that sharing, it's a major, major job, you know. Well, thank you so much, Helena. Uh, It's been an absolute delight to spend these last four sessions with you and I hope that um, we can continue talking as, you know, as online courses and all sorts of things emerge and, you know, if there's ever any way that I can help and support in anything that you do, you know, I'll be the first with my hand up to to say yes, I can help. Um, I'm thrilled about that. And it's wonderful that we've had such a long relationship already. I know, I know, yeah. gosh. I'm really, really I'm very proud of what you're doing. Amazing. You know, I still think of you as so young because you were how old? <laughs> I was like 23 or something. I'm 52 now. <laughs> I think I was old. I'm, I'm probably older now than you were when I first met you. Anyway. Oh, yeah, yes. <laughs> so thank you so much for taking the time with us Helena to really paint these these bigger picture issues that we need to get our heads around and also our hearts around and and to find how it is that we can locally with other people with our communities make make the changes we need and bring forth and and this new story and to look around and see what's happening elsewhere to be looking to looking to the big system, to looking at what's happening in other communities, to looking at what's happening in nature around us and, and in our own life. Like we need we need to bring that there as well, but have these sort of multiple, multiple dimensions to our activism and to be consistently learning and being open to seeing what's really going on in the world. I think that's the what I get from, from these conversations. Yeah. Well, I hope it, it doesn't sound like too big enough, but I'm very glad that you're interested in the bigger picture. And it's, it is, it can absolutely, to start with, sound overwhelming and it can sound very depressing when people aren't quite aware of how destructive things have become. But again, I just hope that people will have heard, you know, in these conversations that 
the wealth that comes when you put on these different lenses and you start looking at affirmation that life, including human beings, the human race, are actually well-motivated, deeply needing love and connection and belonging. That's not a crime. That's a natural human trait. And what this movement is about that we're trying to support is about listening to that and supporting a way forward that will allow us to flourish from that sense of connection to life, all of life. So thank you so much for listening in to this episode of Sense Making in a Changing World podcast. This is the last of our four-part series celebrating and exploring localization with Helena Norberg-Hodge of Local Futures. So that's a wrap. I hope you got a lot out of this localization series and will carry it forward into your life and work wherever you are. We invite you to stay in touch and to explore the resources in the show notes below and to continue the conversations in your local communities about these important important issues. Thanks again. Take care and stay safe.